Good morning. My name is Tara. I'm part of the lead team here. I'm just going to read the scripture today. So we're starting in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. <laughs> the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. I did it. <laughs> Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire in your very presence. Foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Thank you, Tara. We're, uh, as already has been mentioned, we're starting a new series as we uh, kick off the summer here. And uh, the, the name of the series is Uncommon Cause. Uncommon Cause. And this morning, uh, the message is entitled uh, Consequences. Consequences. So as we uh, start a new series, it's going to be a four-week-long series. Uh, obviously, we'll continue on through different parts of, uh, of Isaiah throughout the summer, but we're going to tackle with this series, chapter one, specifically. And uh, as you can see, there's kind of a heaviness in the text that's been read already. Uh, as Isaiah, uh, this is an Old Testament, so the original text uh, was written in biblical Hebrew, and so we'll be talking about Hebrew a little bit. And uh, Isaiah was a, a prophet. And uh, we'll talk more and more about Isaiah and the connections as we move throughout uh, the series and uh, series to come. Uh, but what is pertinent right now is to understand that Isaiah is talking about the nation of Judah. And uh, the nation of Judah is in the midst of thinking they're doing uh, the right thing. They're a very religious group of people going through the motions. And Isaiah is kind of talking about the reality of um, consequences attached to their actions. And so... Uh, as I was thinking a little bit about uh, this morning's text and what it was that I would be sharing, I started thinking about things that we do that we think are typical, uh, common, if you will, and maybe other people would say is very different. And so uh, one of them, believe it or not, given some experiences that I've had, is how you mow a lawn. And so we all have an opinion about that, regardless of your age, either, I mean, and if you're young in the room and you're like, man, I want to ride that tractor. I remember those days where I was like, I want to ride the tractor. Come on, let me ride the tractor. And he's like, how about you use the push mower? I was like, I hate mowing the lawn. Uh, so there's obviously those logistics, but how you actually mow is, an, is another thing entirely different. So there are people in this room that have the opinion that you should not mow the lawn and you should pay other people to do such things, all right? So that's one, that's one thought. Uh, the other is that's the reason you have children is so that someone else will mow the lawn. But uh, in either case, how it is that you mow the lawn, there are people that are straight row people, down, 
turn around, come back, down, turn around, come back. Then there's the people that do the, the square, you know? They kind of circle the lawn, and then they get a little closer and a little closer, and then they get closer and closer and closer until it's kind of like this ridiculous little thing, and they, they mow it all out. And, uh, and then there are people. There are people that just go out and mow wherever it is they would like to mow. And you might think there's no such people. They're barbarians. I know one personally. <laughs> and I love them dearly. I did not ask their permission to share this story, so I will not divulge their name. But I know someone, and I was at their home when they started up their mower and started randomly walking across their flipping lawn. And I was like, what are you doing? It's like, I get the highest stuff first. What? Yeah, I, just, I get the highest stuff first because then it chops it up real small. So then when I come around again, I can chop it up smaller. It's like, you're just going like in a diagonal. Yeah, yeah, like wherever it's high. Like, that's how you mow a lawn, right? <laughs> no. No, that is not how you mow a lawn. And honestly, if you get some people in a conversation, and obviously this isn't the time or place, and I could have picked something far more controversial than lawn, mow lawn mowing. But the fact is, you have an opinion on what the right way is. And your opinion is usually either pushed on other people or you silently judge them, <laughs> typically with your spouse. Why does he mow his lawn like that? It's ridiculous. What in the world is he doing? Or what in the world is she doing? Or why in the world do they unleash their children randomly to run across the yard with lawnmowers? <laughs> Whatever that ends up looking like, the fact is we carry opinions, perceived ideas of what is typical, of what is common, of what makes sense to us, and we bring it into all different areas of our life, all different areas of our life. And so the question I want us to consider as we unpack the text this morning is, why do we resist change when our mind is made up? Why do we resist change when our mind is made up? In that moment, if he was like, you should mow your lawn like this, randomly run around your yard, just cutting the tallest stuff first, I'd be like, that's not going to happen, dude. I'm not going to do it. Why is it that we are unwilling to resist change when our mind is made up? And honestly, the simple and most obvious answer to the question is we resist change when our mind is made up because we or someone we trust has considered all the options and we believe we've made the best decision. We've come to our conclusion. And so we say things, some of us might say we've come to the right decision, depending on your bent. Be like, I consider it all and I do it right. That's the problem. They do it wrong. I do it right. So why change? Why change if we've already considered the system? And of course, I I've talked about a, a lighthearted system and a simple one, a kind of a a non-offensive one in mowing the lawn, but there are a lot of different things that we do specific ways. How it is that we parent, how it is that we interact as a couple, how it is that we interact as a teenager or as a teammate or whatever it might look like. And at the end, we think the way we do things is right. And so why change? Why consider changing? Simple, right? The thing is, when we have a decision to make, we're often so engaged in making the decision that we rarely step back from the situation and consider why we're making the decision and who or what is influencing our perspective. I know 
as silly as an example as it was, I know why I mow the lawn in straight lines. And here's the deal. It's not because that's the way my parents did it. My parents were the square ones. It's just, they do the perimeter of the yard going in and in. And as a child, honestly, I could care less how they mowed the lawn. But it was because they had to mow over an acre and it was just the fastest way to get it done. And so I never really considered how to mow or not mow the lawn until the first time I was paid to mow someone's lawn. And I started going in a square and they're like, time out. You're not mowing my lawn that way. Like, what? Like, no, no, no. You go in straight lines all the way down and turn around and come back if you want to get paid. I'm like, oh, I want me some money. So show me this miraculous way you speak of. <laughs> right? I didn't care. So, so my mind was made up on how I mow the lawn because it was attached to income, quite honestly. So it's not always our familial influence that dictates the way we make decisions or the conclusions we come to. Often it's the outside influences of our life and uh, experiences that we have that kind of solidify and formulate our opinion on how we make decisions or the conclusions we come to. But we don't often step back and say, why are we making the decision this way? What's influencing this? Why did we come to this conclusion? What's informing our perspective? In organizations, there's a name for this reality. It's called uh, single loop learning. And I'm not going to go into it uh, in a lot of depth as far as different learning modules. But I've had the opportunity to work uh, with and consult a lot of different organizations over the years. And in organizational development consulting, there's single loop double loop and triple loop learning. And they're rather complex to explain, as you can imagine. But I think part of that process of organizational learning is informing the way we look at our lives. So single loop learning is the most common learning style. Put simply, and I am oversimplifying it, it's problem solving to evaluate what you should do to get what you want. That's it. What is it that we should do in order to get the result that we want? That's called single loop learning. You get feedback. You say, listen, we want to make a change because we want this, and so we're going to change the way we do that in order to get what it is that we want. Double loop learning, which is rarely done in organizational environments, it's rather uncommon. It's an environment that asks, why do we do what we do? So if that's what we want, why do we do what we do in order to consider how it is that we do it? to get what it is that we want. So why do we do it? Rarely do organizations take the time to discover the why behind things. In fact, if they did, the way they would do things would change, right? The why should inform the way. The why should inform the way. It seems kind of like a simplistic concept, right? Like, why are we doing this? And let's do it this way because of why we're doing it. Imagine how different your classes, your schools, your workplaces would be if the why was actually informing the way things were done. I mean, your mind is probably flooded right now with a million different examples. It's like, listen, if this is what we're really all about, why are we doing it that way? Like, it's literally contradicting what we're saying we're all about. It's an epidemic in organizations, but it even goes beyond that. 
Maybe you're lucky enough to work and live in, in an environment that actually considers the why. And honestly, I'm happy to say that here at Centerway, we are constantly asking the why question. But I think, as I mentioned before, it goes beyond organizations. And the reason why I'm bringing it into the conversation this morning is because it goes directly into the way that we function. The principle has personal application to how uh, we function in this world. Imagine if the way you did things was actually rooted in the why within your marriage. Right? Because it's so easy when you're frustrated at your company or when you're frustrated at your teacher or your school. Like, listen, the goal is to educate me, isn't it? I'm not learning anything. <laughs> isn't this what we said we're about as a company? I mean, if we're really about this as a company, then why wouldn't we change stuff the way we do things? And they're like, but wait, if this is what we're supposed to be as a family, like, all right, Claude, shut it down right there. <laughs> Enough. <laughs> Stop. I don't like the illustration. If, if this is why we're married, then that should infect the way we interact with each other. If this is why we say we're Christ followers, it should affect the way we live our lives. You see, there's personal application. If we aren't careful, relationally and personally, we can focus so much on what we're doing that the why is lost or even contradicted. And that's what Isaiah is addressing with Judah, with the nation of Judah right here. And what I want to submit to you that the Lord is actually addressing with us this morning as we look at this text. Judah as a nation was, was going through the religious motions in a very common way. But somewhere along the way, the why was lost. The why was entirely lost and their motives became corrupt. They were doing some right things, but for all the wrong reasons. How about you? Ever do the right things for the wrong reasons? You ever interact with your spouse because of the way you saw your parents interact with each other? You ever interact with your boss because of some other type of baggage that you're bringing into that office environment? You see, we bring so much into every relationship and every interaction that we have that we don't often take the time to go back and ask why. Why? Are you doing the right things for the wrong reason? You know, we, we learn that in 1 Corinthians that there's a, a whole mess of examples of how we can get so hung up on doing things right that we don't question the motives of why it is that we're doing it. You doing the right thing for the wrong reason is just as bad as doing the wrong thing. In fact, are you so right that you're unwilling to change? Are you so right? And whatever the illustration might be, whether it's relationally or in your marriage or in your friendship or interacting with whatever the illustration may be, family, school, etc., work. Are you so right that you're unwilling to change? Or, much like organizations, are you too lazy, too lazy to ask the why question? Kind of at a place to say, listen, this is, 
This is the way it is. And so the why doesn't matter. It just is what it is. So we're leaning in. We're going through the motions. We're married. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> That's it. It is what it is, okay? <laughs> so now we just live with it. We make the best of it. Sounds inspiring. I bet your kids love it. Oftentimes, change is so much work that we distance ourselves from the change. Maybe not even because we're opposed to the idea of change. We're just opposed to the process that it opens up. Like, oh my gosh, we're going to go back to the why, really? And verse 5 says, why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. It's interesting. What's interesting about this verse that is subtle in the English but very clear in the original Hebrew is that the emphasis is on their stubbornness rather than their willingness. So that literally the thing that is being focused on is the stubbornness of a nation. Why doesn't pain bring change? Why? Why still? Why continue? Their minds are closed. Their minds are closed off. And the reason why I'm kind of laughing is because it's where we live. You guys ever do the same thing and be like, how in the world am I still doing this? Like, this makes no sense. Why am I going through this motion again? Here we are again. It's exhausting. Stubbornness rather than willingness. Because our minds are closed off. Because we're so much concentrating on what it is that we have always done, that we haven't considered the why beneath the what. Why are we doing what we're doing? Well, as much as their minds were closed off, we can say this morning confidently that we are very (laughs) open-minded. Those ridiculous people in the Old Testament, man, if they could just get their act together. (laughs) Like it or not, we humans are creatures of habit. We're creatures of habit. We continue even though we live in the pain of it. Here's the thing. We can think of someone else. Like you could probably think of them right now. In fact, maybe you probably were thinking of them while I was talking. Like, I'll tell you what. Joe Smith, he just can't get his stuff together. Every time I'm looking, I'm like, seriously? Don't you see what this is doing to your family? Can't you see the implications? Man, that guy needs to get his life together. Oh, my life? Yeah, let's not not talk about me. Everybody else is a mess. (laughs) But we do the same thing. We live in pain points over and over again, and we continue the cycle, and we always wonder, how in the world? How in the world am I here again? Why can't I lose the weight? Why can't I get up earlier? Why can't I spend more time with the Lord? Why can't I, I'll stop using illustrations (laughs) because I can see the pain on your face. You know it. We're all guilty of it. We're human beings, Christian or not. We're creatures of habit. And verse six says, from the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds 
They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Now, in our culture, we're like, why in the world would you be pouring oil on open wounds? And, you know, I get it. They're a mess, right? Is that what it's saying? But there's something important to understand about the society at this time. There was no such thing as stitching. So stitching didn't exist in this culture. So when you cut yourself deeply in order to remove any form of infection, they would actually press the wound. <laughs> I think of like the way my kids freak out with like alcohol or peroxide or something. I can't imagine being like, hold still. Grandma's going to squeeze the snot out of it real quick. Like, what? Like, yeah, we need to make it bleed good in case there's infection in there. <laughs> Stay still, Junior. Love ya. You know? <laughs> and so they'd literally squeeze the wound. Squeeze it, squeeze it, squeeze it. Until all the infection got out from their perspective. Then they would put the wound as tightly together as they could and they would bind it. They'd wrap it tight in hopes that a scar would form. And as the scar would begin to form, they would then get oil and rub it on the scar because of how rough and jagged and horrifying that scar would become as a result of their technology. And so what Isaiah is saying here is actually rather gruesome, but it's connecting to our lives in a very real way. He's saying you have gaping wounds. You have gaping wounds that are full of infection. They haven't been pressed out. They haven't even been bound up. They're not moving towards healing. They're not being tended to. And you're living as if you're healthy. That's what he's saying to Judah. You're living as if you're healthy, but from the top of your head to the soles of your feet, you have gaping wounds that are unattended. You live as if you're healthy. Habitually doing what you ought not do. Or habitually not doing what you ought to do. Or habitually doing what you ought to do with corrupt motives. Sound familiar? I mean, one of those has to resonate. Maybe a couple. Maybe you're an all three-er. <laughs> I do some things that I ought to do for the wrong reason. I do some things I shouldn't do, and I never do the things I ought to do. Whatever. Whatever that looks like. Every human in this room deals with at least one of these. The habitual reality of the way we function. And so what's the result? The result is verses 7 and 8 that, that literally lays out destruction. That's it. The result of living as if you're healthy with gaping wounds is destruction. Here's the problem for Judah specifically. Verses 7 and 8 were prophetic. Now, what that means is verses 7 and 8, they weren't living in the midst of. They're living in the midst of verses 5 and 6, where they think everything is going good. They're going through the proper motions, and they have gaping wounds. They have problems and infections and issues that they're unaware of, and they're unattending to. And yet, the prophetic is, if you continue on this road, then verses 7 through 8, if you continue living as if you're healthy, the result will be destruction. In other words, even though Judah had these habitual issues, they were unwilling to change and ultimately reaped the consequences of the rhythms of their lives. They had gaping wounds they refused to address. 
They were gripped by habit. Unhealthy and healthy for the wrong reason. You know what I find interesting? As humans, we have no issue with physical consequences. We have no issue with it whatsoever. I'll explain. Gravity. Gravity is never described as unfair. Right? No, no one's ever like, oh, gravity. <laughs> Got me again. You wretched thing. Once again, I fall victim to this evil body called gravity that strikes me day in and day out. Like, we never do that. We accept the reality of the consequences of gravity. Right? When a kid falls, when they're up somewhere high, we look at them and say, that's why I told you not to go high. Because you might fall. We don't sit them down and say, come here, honey. <laughs> gravity got you again. <laughs> one of these days, one of these days we're going to get past gravity. Right? It doesn't happen. We don't have these weird hang-ups with physical consequences. We explain danger. Inertia is another one. For those of you that that's an SAT word for, something in motion is going to continue in motion, right? So we're never like, hey, you know what would be fun? The next car that drives by, let's just hop in front of it. You think? Let's give it a shot, John. Right? No, it doesn't happen. Why? Because we understand that if you step in front of a moving car, you will have consequences. We get it. We realize it. We don't argue for the fairness of it. We don't wrestle with the consequences of it. We just realize that's what happens when you're not paying attention and something's moving, you step in front, you're going to get hit. It's going to hurt 10 times out of 10. Being burned, right? We teach kids at a ridiculously early age, hot, hot. And they're like, <laughs> ah, and you're like, hot. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> they're like, hot, you know. We teach these, we don't say like, what, it burned you? Honey, get the oven out of here. I am sick of this wretched thing. It just inflicts pain on us all the time and we don't know why. No, we get it. There are consequences to our physical actions. These are what they are and we don't waste our time arguing against them. In fact, we teach about their consequences. We get our young, as young as we can, and we teach about the reality of physical consequences. And when we make mistakes dealing with things in the physical, we even sometimes use ourselves as an object lesson. Oh, daddy burned himself. I, I shouldn't have touched it. It was hot. See, look at that. That's a blister. You don't want one of them, you know? We say things like, well, I deserve that. That's what I get for stepping in front of a bicycle. <laughs> Or, yeah, well, uh, that's what I get, you know? I should have been real careful grabbing onto that hot pot without using something. These are responses that, that, we, that we take, that we say, because we take responsibility for the action we did. Like, we did something stupid, and there's the consequence. I got burned. My fault. I'm going to own it. And listen, Isaiah is telling us that there are standards for spiritual behavior that are just as consequential as the ones in our physical world. And we can waste our time complaining about the fairness of it. 
We can waste our lives talking about how it's just not fair that we can just pursue whatever feels right in the moment. Or we can accept the reality, make the changes. We can teach our loved ones about the consequences of the decisions they make and maybe even use ourselves as object lessons in moments that we fail. The truth is, given our propensity for habitual activity and our general unwillingness to change, our future is bleak. We, like Judah, are facing judgment and ultimately hell. I'll see you next week. <laughs> That's the reality of, of, of the fallen nature of humanity. I, you got to look at the reality, otherwise you can't think about the why and you definitely can't consider change. You see, much like Judah, you might be walking around with open, gaping wounds. And like, I'm healthy as ever. And you're on your way to destruction unknowingly. Verse 9 says, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Judgment cast because of their idolatry, worshiping other things, worshiping the created plane over God. And so they were destroyed, utterly destroyed. And yet there's a remnant that Isaiah is saying the Lord is leaving. In fact, Paul references it in Romans he references this verse in particular and talks about the reality of God and his graciousness provides a way out. You see, what this text is saying, what this verse is saying in verse 9 is that God is both the judge and the savior. The judge and the savior in one. You see, Jesus took the consequences of our sin so that we can pursue freedom. Left to our own, the future is bleak. We face judgment and hell because of our own propensity for selfishness and habitual activity and just pursuing whatever feels right in the moment. And yet God in his graciousness came and fulfilled the law, lived sinlessly, and then took on our consequences so that we could live in the freedom that he deserves. And so we might say, so how do we become free? If freedom's available in Christ, then how do we do that? How do we break the cycle? I mean, do we just say like, oh, okay, so thanks, God. High five. Like, now I'm good. The way we experience freedom is to increase our proximity to Jesus. Scripture says that as we increase our proximity to Jesus, that we hunger and thirst for righteousness, that the cares of this world grow strangely dim, that through the, the reading of Scripture, the renewing of our minds, we actually change the desires of our heart. And some of you might say, well, I, I tried that. And, and if, if you're saying I tried that, then you don't know what I mean. This isn't something that you try. Like, I, I gave that church thing a shot. Didn't help me with any of my habits, so I just went back to the habits. Talking about a relationship. A relationship that as you increase proximity to Christ on a daily basis, as you continually allow the Lord and his priorities to reorient the priorities of your life, that all of a sudden the cares and the worries of this world start to grow strangely dim. That it literally begins to transform your thought process, the renewing of your mind. 
That the things that used to grip you suddenly don't have interest anymore. The things that you were pursuing and wanted to bring about change, it seems like you're hungering and thirsting for those. They become the lifeline. God was so patient with Judah. He was so patient with Judah. And he is so patient with us. So what do we do? What are some practical things that we can do this morning? Because sometimes when we say increased proximity to Jesus, it means something different to every person in this room. So I want to tell you a couple things. First, you have to acknowledge that you have gaping wounds. You have to come to a place that you realize there are gaping wounds. That you're not all bound up and tidy and perfectly healthy. That, that there's parts of your life that is a hot mess. And granted, maybe you hide it better than the person next to you. But there's wounds nonetheless. There's habits in your life. Things you do that you ought not do. Things that you ought to do but don't. Things that you do for the wrong reason. So which one? Which is it for you? What are the things that the Lord is leading to, speaking to you in this moment about the habits of your life? Are you willing to acknowledge them? Some of them are very obvious, but I think in the obviousness of things like addiction, whether it's uh, you're an alcoholic, uh, drug addict, or even addicted to pornography, whatever those things might be that sometimes we classify these habits as addictions. But you know, it's, it's actually not quite that dark and grim all the time. The habit that might be gripping your life might be a lot more like just not being able to declutter your life enough to create margin for your Savior. When was the last time you just allowed the Lord to speak to you? That you were in complete silence? Just said, God, I want to hear from you. And maybe even admittedly saying, I'm not even sure what it means. Because I don't even know if I can hear you, but I'm going to create a window of my life. I'm going to prioritize you. Because we will clear our schedule for other things. We'll, we'll clear our schedule for a ton of things. I could go through examples, but there's no reason to shame the room. Like, we know it. We know it. So sometimes it's what it is that we ought to do, and it's not necessarily... It, it's not necessarily stopping a sin area. It's the idea of creating margin in our lives for the things God wants us to do. So that's the first thing. Acknowledge that there's some wounds. The second thing is realize that there's consequences for your spiritual activity or the lack thereof. There's consequences for it. It's funny. There's extremes when it comes to, uh, to grace. Sometimes there's, there's people that won't speak about grace. It's just kind of, you know, hellfire and brimstone. Like, listen, you are a hot mess. You're going to burn in hell. I'm telling you, there's nothing you can do. Earn it, earn it, earn it. You know, be religious. Try harder. It's exhausting. It doesn't work. But there's another extreme to that. It's called antinomianism for an SAT word. It simply means that we have so much grace that you just live however you want. God will just deal it out. They just deal out grace. Do whatever you want and God will extend grace to you. There's extremes like everything in life. 
But both of them are perversions of a relationship with Jesus Christ. It says, listen, I'm awarded grace because of that which Christ has done. And yet, I'm still responsible for the actions I take. The truth is, God will forgive you because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, but there will be consequences for sin on this earth. There will be. You can act like there won't be, but you're wasting your time arguing against something that is as foolishly as someone would argue against gravity. You kill someone, will God forgive you? Yeah, he forgave the people that killed him. There is grace for that, but there's consequences for that that are far-reaching beyond just prison time. Steal, you break the marriage covenant, you lie, you're slothful, that means lazy. You're a glutton. That means overeating. I can go through a list, but like I said, no reason to shame the room. We're all there. We all have something that we're like, this grips our life. Don't live as if there are no consequences for your actions. Because there is. We must live laying down all idols. You see, because at the core of every sin, the why beneath it is idolatry. Idolatry is worshiping the created over the creator. And so there's all different forms of idolatry, but it's idolatry nonetheless. It's in a moment where we're either worshiping ourselves and our own comfort, our own desires, or we're worshiping something of this earth. There are consequences for worshiping idols. Because of Jesus, hell doesn't have to be one of those consequences. But do you really want to live your life just trying to avoid hell? You see, because Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life abundantly. And that means it's not just about avoiding hell. It means living within the parameters of the way God created us to be so that we can be healthy and joyful and living life on mission. You see, we would be a a negligent parent if we didn't teach our kids about gravity, about inertia, about being burned, all these things. And, and, And never does our child look at us and go, Mom, how dare you restrict my life? into these narrow road of gravity. I fear falling now, thanks to you. We don't do that. And yet, in spiritual things, we, we, we rise up sometimes as if like, wait a second, you can't tell me how to live my life. You can't put limits on my joy. You can't put limits on... It's so interesting that we're not willing to broaden our perspective of the reality of the conversation of consequences that the limits are there for our health and joy. We want God and even others to be patient with us as we negotiate the reality of this life. And yet we quickly demand consequences when they're in our favor. We're not often grace-filled. So I want to challenge us to be uncommon. To be uncommon in the way that we function to consider the habits of our lives. 
And so there's kind of these multifaceted applications today. It's a little bit unique in the sense that I, I want to challenge you to consider the habits of your life as you leave this place. I want you to, to consider and realize that there's consequences for some of those things because sometimes it's the consequences that awaken our awareness, right? It's the first time you get burned that you realize, hot, right? And so in the same way, we have to come to a place where we acknowledge the consequences of the trajectory of our life so that we can come back to the why and evaluate the habits of our lives. But all the while, as we leave this place, we have to be considering in the reality of the patience that God has for us as we negotiate this life, that we would extend patience and grace to others. And so the application as we leave this place this morning that I want us to consider is this. In light of the patience God displays towards me, who is he asking me to be patient with? Who is God asking you to be patient with? We talked about a lot of different application questions as a preaching team when it came to this text. And the reason why we landed here is because as we go through a process of evaluating the messiness of our own lives, for some reason, what coincides with us digging deep into our own lives is a lack of patience for others and theirs. You see, oftentimes when we unearth the messiness of our lives, we love to blame. I know why this is a mess. It's because of you. <laughs> I know why this is a mess. It's because of you. Well, if only then this. If only my, you know, kids weren't waking me up. I'm going to be transparent about some of my, if only my kids weren't waking me up, then I would be able to have some of that time alone with the Lord to the degree in which I'd like. And so I could sit there and, and negotiate the reality of the fact that oftentimes it means I have to get up at about four in the morning to spend time with the Lord the way I want. So I can, I can unearth that or I can say, oh, I know why. Kids fault. Good night. <sighs> right? I have to be patient with my children. I'm going to award them grace. Why? Because I have to process something that the Lord's speaking to me about. And so that's why as you leave this place, I want you to consider who it is that you have to be patient with as you unearth the habits of your life. Make sense? As you consider that application question and process with the Lord speaking to you, I want you to be aware that maybe the application is that you haven't allowed God to, uh, I'm sorry, you haven't allowed uh, space in your life to acknowledge the patience that God has had with you. You're living your life so busily and pursuing after the things of this world that you've never asked Jesus to be the Lord and leader of your life. And so for this morning, if you're on the other side of a relationship with Christ and you haven't crossed that line, I just want to encourage you to consider making a decision to, to walk in the awareness of the grace that God awards you. It's as simple as you praying a prayer, the quietness of your mind as you sit where you are not going to embarrass you or make you come forward, anything like that. I don't like to be embarrassed. The decision that you can make right where you're sitting to simply say, Lord, I'm a sinner, but you died for my sins. You come and be the Lord and leader of my life. And we'd love to walk alongside you as to what your next steps would involve. But for others of you in the room, you've already crossed that line of faith. I want to challenge you to consider the habits of your life. Which of those three categories or multiple do they fall in? I want to challenge you to consider what are the consequences if we continue on this road? What does destruction look like? 
And most of all, I want to challenge you to be patient with others as it will inevitably bump up against other lives as you go through this journey. And if you're there saying, listen, this is what I live every day. I go through this rhythm every day. This is who I am, and I consider the habits of my life and what I should do, and and all of that for you, the application is to live on mission in new and deeper ways, to come to a place in your life where you're pursuing spiritual conversation so you can help others understand in a loving way the consequences of their life, not in some judgmental way, but in a way where you become the object lesson. In the same way that you lovingly tell your kid about how you've injured yourself or burned yourself, that you would lovingly walk alongside coworkers and family members and say, I used to be where you are. And this is the end of that story. Or you can find the grace that I've found. You can find the joy that I've found. So I don't know what your application is this morning, whether it's crossing the line of faith or personally negotiating the habits of your life or living on mission and sharing your faith. Wherever it is, though, the text requires something of us. And so I want us to spend some time reflecting on that and the potential of it. If you would just bow your heads and close your eyes. You can leave your eyes open if you'd like if you're going to be distracted. But the band is going to come up and we're going to go into some songs as a response to the word that we've heard this morning. And as we do, I just want to challenge you to consider the application in your own life. Allow the Holy Spirit to just speak to you, to convict you, to kind of put their finger, that the Lord would put his finger right on, on that spot, on that, on that broken area of your life, the thing that, that you'd love to keep in the, the closets and recesses of your heart and mind because you don't want to come face to face with kind of the mess of your life. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal truth. That you would show us the areas of our life where we're engaged in the wrong things. Areas of our life where we're engaged in the right things but for the wrong reason. And the areas of our lives that we don't engage in the right things. Father, not that we would try harder to earn your love and your grace. That's awarded to us. We walk in your grace and mercy, but Father, that we would live in the fullness of life that you intended. That we would have the freedom and the joy that you want to extend to us because we're providing opportunity for you to transform our hearts and our minds. Would you awaken our hearts this morning to who you are and what you've done?